hymn number 270. Jeff has announced that. We'll be honored to sing that together at the appropriate time in the service today. And as was mentioned earlier, how thankful we each can be that we've been permitted by way of health and disposition of heart to assemble like this. As I look over the audience, again, a good number of our members, and for that we're so grateful, and visitors as well. We all just would desire with nothing else than to worship God in truth and in spirit, required, of course, of us in John 4, verse 24. As we come today to this particular part of our service, the opportunity to reflect and consider in some detail a section of the Word of God, I'd like to invite you to consider a lesson I've entitled, The Death of the King. We probably already know, in fact, giving thought to those chapters that we have been reading, that of course we've now arrived at the end of the gospel account known as John. This past week we read the last several chapters of the book of John, and of course, as was true of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they cast an amazing spotlight on the death of the greatest being to ever have lived and to walked on this planet. As His death is highlighted, that of Jesus the Christ, we find embodied in the way in which He approached the cross, the features surrounding it, things that we'll consider this morning in our lesson. The death of a king, you may notice. As we've read now roughly four-fifths of the Word of God, this section touching the death of Christ makes us contemplate this. Isn't it amazing that often when a great ruler, a king, passes away, often chaos results. When Alexander the Great died, that great leader of the ancient Greek empire, we well remember after his passing away, that kingdom split asunder four different ways because various generals wanted their part of it. When our Savior approached His own demise, His own death on the cross, we notice some amazing preparatory truths that we find embodied in these chapters, and I hope they can, in fact, be an encouragement to us today. You may notice one of the first things on that slide, the truth surrounding it leaves us no doubt as to this is what happened. Let's look at our first element, the first matter perhaps being this one. It has to do with that statement used as the lesson text this morning. From the 18th chapter of John, I would invite you to notice again the strength of this language. You may remember that Jesus, of course, had been questioned by Pilate. And not only that, others had questioned Him as well. But before Pilate, we find the following conversation taking place. Beginning in verse number 35, Pilate said, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Jesus, in a very matter-of-fact fashion, said, My kingdom is not of this world. Had it been the Lord's desire to have a large physical kingdom with a following, and He enthroned in a particular matter of reign, He could have had it. We noted earlier in the study of John chapter 6, they were ready then to make him a king. But he here asserted to Pilate, I am no threat to you in terms of a physical reign of, of, over a country on this earth. My kingdom is not of this world. 
He even noticed, if it were, my servants would fight that I wouldn't be delivered to you. Jesus, in fact, spoke about matters like this. He highlighted here the marvelous matter of a kingdom that was far greater in supremacy and greater in nature than a physical kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. That truth and that factor hasn't changed in these 20 centuries, for isn't it still the case that His kingdom, that which is His citizens and His subjects, they follow a recognition of not a matter of this world. Their ultimate disposition and goal is elsewhere. Look at just a few of these statements with me if you would. We live in the midst of a day and time in which there still are those who call into question the kingship of our Lord in terms of His kingdom not being of this world. Multitudes labor under the illusion that there is coming a time when He will reign in some way on this earth. They look for a utopian premillennial kind of circumstance, but the Scriptures do not teach it. He here forevermore asserted, My kingdom is not of this world. Notice in Colossians 1.13, decades later in the concourse of the New Testament, we find the appreciation there under description of the church in Colossae. Notice the church in Colossae. And it was to those saints, to those brethren that Paul in writing said, in great marvelous blessing, you have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. The preposition into asserted they had made a transition from a present kingdom, if you please, into the kingdom of the blessed Son of God. The Colossians then were members in the kingdom. They were citizens in it. To that you and I can add the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12, they too were in the kingdom. And isn't it true that near the close of the first century, John, that apostle who wrote the book of Revelation... He too asserted he was in the kingdom, Revelation 1, verses 9 and 10. Every one of these matters brings us to appreciate then that as the New Testament teaches concerning the grandeur of the church, the church was the very matter indicative of that kingdom of which the Lord had spoken. My kingdom is not of this world. No wonder in light of that we can appreciate Jesus, in regard to Pilate, made reference to truth. Did you notice the language of verse 37? To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. The matter of the kingdom not being of this world is a matter in truth. It's not a myth, a fantasy. It's not a consideration of anybody's mind. Truth. And aren't you and I ultimately interested in that which is the truth? I would ask you to consider very quickly that that truth was often a subject that our Savior referenced. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, He said in John 14. On other occasions, He had highlighted to those very dear apostles of Himself about the nature of the truth He cast before them and led them to appreciate. My kingdom is not of this world. It seems a very strong temptation, doesn't it, to attach the concept of the kingdom with what's here. We in America, with our materialistic blessings, and yet the kingdom is not attached to the things, ultimately this physical nature. In fact, Jesus will tell them many more things concerning that, as we shall see in the lesson this morning. 
I would invite you to recall with me a statement the Apostle Paul made. In the sixth chapter of the Ephesian letter, he had asserted to those Ephesians the needfulness that was theirs to stand. And having done all, he asserted to stand. And as he began to make listing of the enemy, he said, We wrestle not against flesh and against blood, but against principalities and powers, against the spiritual darkness and wickedness in high places, Ephesians 6 verse 12. The kind of enemy that Paul had in mind was again an enemy that was not of flesh and blood. We know that you and I, as the kingdom of God, we de in fact wrestle against these great powers of that realm beyond the physical one. There is an ongoing war. And you and I know, at least from newscasts and other kinds of media presentations, that the war in many ways doesn't look favorable to us. It looks as though Satan is winning far more than we'd like. It looks as though his ascendancy is far more dramatic than we would ever think possible. Doesn't it remind us one last time that the kingdom of which the Lord spoke is a spiritual rule and reign in the hearts and lives of men and women? My kingdom is not of this world, but He does rule in your heart and mine. He sits enthroned in majesty in the lives of those that are His followers, you and me. In light of that concept of the kingdom, notice some of the other statements that so interestingly are found. You did notice with me that Jesus did say in verse 36 of our text, My servants, my servants... We know that kings have servants. And this is one place among many in which we find the kingship of the master highlighted in no uncertain terms. Pilate asked him, are you a king then? Jesus said, you say I'm a king. He had already identified to many others he was the son of God. And we remember in Matthew chapter 1, call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1 verses 21 to 23 in light of this kingship of the Master, isn't it then so sweet to hear a number of passages like these? He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Borrowing the language of 1 Timothy 6.15, Revelation 17.14, and Revelation 19.16. All of them highlighting the absolute rule and kingship of the Master, Jesus the Christ. Perhaps it would be fine at this point to recollect an Old Testament prophecy. You may recall the impressive scene with me taken from the days of Daniel chapter 7. It was on that occasion that Daniel, as you and I well remember, had been blessed with various visions and dreams as the seventh chapter of that book rolls before us. We recall that Daniel was given a vision. Daniel, what do you see? Daniel said, When I saw the Son of Man pass through the clouds under the ancient of days, He was given dominion and majesty and a kingdom. Now let's put all of that together. Who is the Son of Man that Daniel saw in that vision? Jesus calls Himself on many occasions the Son of Man. In fact, He Himself referred to Himself in that very fashion on so many occasions. Son of Man seems a dramatic and overt reference to Jesus Christ. When the Son of Man passes through the clouds, when did He pass through the clouds? On the day of His ascension, 
after he was crucified and after he was resurrected, while assembled with those apostles on Mount Olivet, he passed through the clouds under the Ancient of Days, Acts 1.11. And as he did, Daniel foretold the fact he would be given dominion and majesty in a kingdom. Not ten verses later, when we turn the page from Acts 1 into Acts chapter 2, we find indeed he was given the kingdom. The doors of it were flung wide open that day as Peter preached the first gospel sermon. And there have been precious folks entering the kingdom ever since. The kingdom is not of this world, the Lord taught. You'll notice in light of all of that, what a significance it brings for you and me to appreciate how special the Christian life is. Those in this world are encumbered sometimes with the things of this life, and we know life can bring its challenges. But to the Christian who can gaze beyond it, realizing that beyond the turmoil of the time is a horizon of comfort and joy and peace that awaits because we are citizens in a kingdom of which Jesus is king. This kingdom, Jesus very straightforwardly to Pilate, in the midst of the turmoil about him, those calling for his own death, Pilate wringing his hands not knowing what to do, did you ever notice the calmness with which Jesus could approach all of this? My kingdom is not of this world. You and I are citizens in a kingdom. And quite frankly, Paul could say in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We look forward to a far finer place than this. The finery of all of that closes this slide then by leading us to ask a pertinent question. It is a very leading question. And I'll use it to prompt each of our thinking. You and I know the significance of being the citizen of a kingdom. Citizen of the United States, all of us are. We are not citizens of Switzerland or Russia or China. We're citizens of this country. And we enjoy the benefits and blessings that go with that citizenship. The Lord said, my kingdom is not of this world. Question, are you a citizen then of the Lord's kingdom? And be honest about it. For the Bible knows nothing about affiliation. What good does it do at the time of one's passing to say he or she was affiliated with the church of Christ? You're either a member of it or you're not. There is no such thing as proxy benefit in relation to Christianity. Nothing in the Bible is found with respect to that at all. What then could be said about me and you? If I'm not a faithful citizen then in that kingdom, whose fault is it? The Lord presented clearly, my kingdom isn't of this world. And 27 New Testament books highlight the urgency and the essentiality of passing away being a member of that kingdom. If you and I aren't today, please do something about it before this service ends. Please in urgency recognize that this day is yours and there may not be another. This kingdom of which we've spoken now leads us to consider some additional matters too. I would ask you to notice, Acts 20, 28, that precious blood of Christ purchased this kingdom. It is with that in mind, let's now consider the following. Isn't it amazing in those hours leading up to the Lord's death, those features surrounding this passage and those chapters just before it, the Lord had a remarkable an impressive mindset with respect to those others that were about him. The greatest prayer recorded anywhere in the Bible is in John 17. I feel safe in making that statement. 
It is the prayer, the intercessory prayer that Jesus offered on the night just prior to His death. He prayed in such earnestness. He prayed not just for Himself. In fact, His own reference to Himself was a minor matter in that prayer. You may remember the prayer did begin by appealing to the Father, Glorify Thou me with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. He knew the hours were soon going to pass and He would be back with His Father. And He longed to be glorified as He had previously understood it prior to His leaving heaven to come to this earth. However, after closing that attribute in John 17, Jesus quickly made reference in lengthy matter about others. He prayed for those apostles. After all, He soon was going to leave and He would be gone back to heaven. They were going to carry on the critical elements of His work, but we know they'd be led by the Holy Spirit. He promised them the Comforter would come. But He prayed that they might be steadfast. He prayed that they would not be overwhelmed and overcome by those trials and temptations and other features of the earth. Isn't it true? He prayed that they be not of the world, even though they were in it. What about you and me today? If our kingdom, as citizens in that kingdom, if that kingdom and citizenship just lie beyond the realms of this life, are we in constant reminding of the fact then that we should ever appreciate how sweet it is to be a citizen of a kingdom, not of this world? I would ask you to consider it like this. The statements that the Lord made on this occasion, praying for those apostles, directly led Him to continue those utterances in that prayer as He prayed even for everyone that would believe on Him through the word of those apostles. That begins in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for all of them which shall believe on Me through their word, that they may be one. Jesus, even in those hours prior to the scene of the cross, he prayed for the unity, the unison character of those that would be His followers. This, of course, smacks in the face of denominational division. It smacks in the face of all that has seemingly developed under the banner of Christianity since. The Lord prayed that His followers would be united, that they'd be one. No wonder Paul would say, there is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all, Ephesians 4, 4, 5, and 6. That unity leads us today to understand that Jesus didn't purchase many kingdoms. My kingdom, singular. How needful it is to highlight it, to be a part of it, to uphold it. And no wonder, as you close that slide with me, you'll notice so many things that Jesus did not mention on this occasion. He's highlighted His followers, those apostles, and you and I. Notice other things would await for other revelations. On this occasion, He made no mention of miracles. He made no mention of other specific features of the first century. He spoke about general matters that would last until time's end. How blessed we are to be members, citizens of a kingdom, not of this world. Maybe in light of that, a third observation is in order. This observation, I've chosen to entitle it, No Vengeance. 
Here again was Jesus standing before a man who could have released him, Pilate. Pilate, as the Roman official at the moment, did serve beneath Caesar, but Pilate did have the liberty of trying matters like this one and, if he saw fit, to set the Lord free. Jesus knew the infamy and all of it, and He knew the injustice that was to prevail. He had just spent a night, in fact, beaten and battered by others who had little interest or respect for what He stood for. Now you even realize with me, the Lord had the opportunity in enmity and in wrath and even in hatred, moved by animosity, to call into question the events of the moment, and He could have ended any of it at any time. But through it all, I would entitle this... The scourging that he experienced, that was about to happen, by the way, takes place in John 19.1. Think of it, just a matter of maybe a few minutes. Five minutes from the time he was speaking here in John chapter 18, he was going to be tied and beaten. Not long after that, crucified. And yet we find in the statements he made here, some encouraging issues about a degree of concern and love that truly are astounding. He loved those apostles and He wanted them to be faithful. He loved you and me and He wants us to be faithful. Think about Peter. Peter had denied Him. And yet in John 21, the resurrected Lord will appear to him and encourage him three times to feed my lambs. You'll notice that there was no hatred in Jesus for Peter. He was sorry Peter made the decision he made. But he wanted Peter to be truthful and faithful. God wants you and me to be truthful and faithful. Throughout the issues that life may bring, through it all, remain faithful. The circumstances of life and the devil will attempt to use them to draw aside you and me from faithfulness. But let us not allow him to succeed in that. For our kingdom, of which we're a part, is not of this world. That kingdom of which we have spoken so far, and this concept of no vengeance. Isn't it true that Jesus in Luke 23, 34 had even prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Of course, shortly after these events here, as He was nailed to that cross, even that attribute of well wishes on the part of those Roman, Roman crucifiers... Maybe all of that challenges us to the point that we begin to see that that's so different from what we see about us. We see a world that seems to preach, take vengeance. You get even with other people. But Jesus taught to turn the other cheek. If a man takes your coat, give him your cloak as well. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and following. We notice then that this discussion can oftentimes be so hard. I know recently our family suffered a bit of vandalism and it wasn't by any means pleasant. And it's easy to want revenge at someone who harms things that belong to you or perhaps devastates them in some way. But the Christian spirit would lead us to hope for them that they could come to realize the foolishness of what they did and that we would not wish in a way to get even, but rather we might wish a far better, more noble thing. And why are we motivated so? We are citizens of a kingdom, not of this world. Maybe you and I have been on the receiving end of things like that. 
Others have showed to us great kindness in some way. Kindness that maybe at moment we didn't feel as though we deserved. Jesus, of course, extended to us the greatest of all kindnesses when He died for us. I would close that slide by asking all of us to consider Romans 5.8. But God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can you and I embody that kind of thinking to others, showing to them that we're citizens of a kingdom not of this world? I trust that we can and we are able to do that. Another attribute, another feature that seems to follow from this lesson text is the one I've reserved until now. I've entitled it at the top, as you can see, an issue, a concern relating to preparation. Think again about these events unfolding in the closing chapters of John. As the Lord trudged His way toward the events at Calvary, He made ready. He made preparation. I've chosen to list a few of them. Beginning in John 14, Jesus had earnestly taught those apostles. He promised them the Spirit was going to come, but it wouldn't come until He left. But He prepared them to recognize that they would not be left comfortless. He encouraged them to understand that they would be led into all truth, John 16, 13. He promised them that the peace that He Himself knew would also be a guiding matter for them, John 16, 33. He asserted to them that the matters concerning what they had seen about them, even the Jesus' own arrest, that that was not to trouble them. I stated all that like this, a wise person will make preparation for his own death. I suppose we don't like to think about death, quite frankly. But yet, as taught in the Word of God, you and I in wisdom should recognize that the only wise course of action is to prepare for it. For to not do so is certainly one of the most foolish choices we can ever, ever make. In these hours leading up to His own crucifixion, Jesus, of course, had devoted over three years to preparing for this event, but He made preparation not only in His life, but to help prepare them. I would ask you to think about the statement He made in the opening verses of John 17. It is such an interesting way of stating it. John 17, beginning in verse 1, Jesus said, These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee. As Thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as Thou hast given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. What a selfless prayer. Here he was, a mere hours really from his own death. The text says he knew his hour had come. The time had now arrived. It was the case that his prayer was that God be glorified. Your death and mine is not so much about me or you, quite frankly, but about what we've done in ultimate preparation for glorification of God. I would ask you to think of it like this. The Savior Himself could say, I finished your work, John 17, 4. He could openly affirm He had done what it was He was sent to this earth to do. You and I have been put in this place to serve God. The wholeness of life surrounds that. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter 
Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Are you and I finishing the work He gave us to do? Are you a citizen of that kingdom, not of this world? It even leads us further. We remember Moses and Joshua's Old Testament examples made preparation for the time of their departure. Moses helped to groom and prepare Joshua so that the leadership of Israel could continue. And we remember how that even Joshua made ample preparation himself in the language of Judges chapter 2, verses 11 and following. I suppose all of that leads us to ask a personal question. What about you and me? In recent months, my family and I have been called, in some cases, to the bedside of those who knew that their time was fading fast. They knew that their hours upon this earth were not going to be much longer. We've all been moved, our family, as we've thought about. They invariably ask, would you pray with me? Would you pray that my sins be forgiven? Thankfully, they were Christians, but they wanted to make sure. They wanted to pray for forgiveness of anything that there might remain between them and passing through the portal of death, saved and ready to enter into the grand, grand and golden gates beyond here in that realm known as paradise. They prayed. They wanted that. They didn't want prayers for the doctors. They didn't want prayers for the nurses that all would be done well. They wanted prayers involving a kingdom, not of this world. That's great. We've always been happy and honored to pray for them. On another occasion... It was a Friday, called to the house of a man that passed away the previous night. His wife, his widow was there, and she said, Do you want to see the body? I got there before even the funeral personnel had arrived. She took me in, I saw the body. She wasn't agitated or troubled because she was convinced that man had died in the Lord and that things were better with him at the present moment. Friends, the kingdom of this world is not a light matter. And we are foolish if we think that we can just affiliate with it in some way. We need to be members of it. And if you're not today, and there are members, there are people at this point here in the sound of my voice that aren't, I urge you, the Lord urges you, please, please make some preparation by stepping out on faith in the very things and being a member of that kingdom. Out of this world I'm unable to take. Things of silver and gold that I make. All that I cherish and all that I keep I must leave behind when I fall asleep. I often wonder what I shall own in that other world where I go alone. What shall they hear and what shall they see in the soul that answers the call for me? Shall the great judge come in when my task is through, my spirit for gaining great riches too? Or at the last shall it be mine to find? All that I've worked for, I've left behind. If you aren't a member of the kingdom today, it's time to do something about it. If you're an alien sinner, one that's never initially made response to the gospel's invitation, you need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins and confess His great name as the, as the Messiah and be baptized. If we can help you do that, don't delay. If you have been a faithful member but are not today, Jesus said, my kingdom isn't of this world. 
in faith, you need to revisit and return to that formal state of faithfulness. And if we could help you to, by prayer, we'd be happy to do it. Today, this is the opportune time. Today is the day of salvation. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?